Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, one of the bête noires of the China-Africa relationship, the thing that frustrates people more than anything, is this perception, real or otherwise, that the Chinese, when they come to Africa, um, are exploiting Africans. And in part, for the evidence of that, they say there is no skills transfer that's happening. So when Chinese kind of launch construction projects, they're not training local workers. When the Chinese kind of invest in telecommunications, they're not training technicians and engineers. And it's this kind of perception. Again, we're going to find out a little bit later if it's real or if it's, again, another misperception about the Chinese in Africa. But it is definitely one of the things that kind of gets under people's skin quite a bit, in part because the Chinese, when they were coming up in the 1970s and 80s, really forced, made it a condition for anybody who wanted to invest in China, for the most part, that they had to agree to very, very strict terms of skills transfer. And interestingly, Kobus, a lot of that if we go back into the history, came from the Japanese. So the Japanese were among the most aggressive investors and partners for Japan, uh, for China in the 1970s and 1980s, and a lot of those skills transfers came from Japan. And so there's a little bit of a sense of hypocrisy today that the Chinese, when they're going abroad, are not doing the same thing. This narrative is also is also strengthened by the fact that a lot of the Chinese expansion in Africa has taken place in the minerals and commodity sector. So there's a lot of there was a lot of extraction, and that then led to a, a, a very strong story that we see a lot of China is just there to strip Africa of minerals, and they they're not transferring any skills. They're just just kind of digging it out and and shipping it away. Um, and what we're now seeing is that there is some skills transfer happening, but that is actually happening in other fields outside of the mining industry, like, for example, telecommunications. Well, telecommunications is one of the areas that we're going to focus on today. And in particular, we're going to look at one company, the telecommunications giant Huawei. Uh, we're going to explain a little bit about how, what Huawei is and who they are and why they are so important, not just in Africa, incidentally, but there's a good chance that if you're pretty much anywhere but the United States, uh, the device that you are listening to this show uh, was connected to a Huawei product somewhere along the way, uh, whether it's the actual phone, whether it's your uh, the, the some of the chips, whether it's the routers that it's connected to, whether it's the Wi-Fi modem, uh, all of those things Huawei makes, and they are playing a very important role. So we're going to go to Washington, D.C. now, where we're joined by uh, Ben Sui, who is a second-year master's candidate at Johns Hopkins University, and he recently wrote a paper for the China-Africa Research Initiative. Some of you may be familiar with that. Of course, that is the home of Professor Deborah Braudigam, and she's been putting forward on publishing quite a bit of master's students' work on this. And Ben put together a paper, Do Huawei's Training Programs and Centers Transfer Skills to Africa? Ben Sui, thank you so much for joining us on the program, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Let's, um, let's start right off the bat, uh, just because not everybody might be familiar with who is Huawei. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background about the company and, uh, and a little bit about its history? Yeah, uh, it was founded in 1987 by Ren Junfei. Uh, he was a former engineer in the People's Liberation Army. Uh, this was during the time of economic, uh, the opening up of China. Um, it focused on uh, making telecommunications equipment. Um, now it's they've refocused um, developing for 
uh, wireless networks and uh, started focusing on creating smartphones now and trying to expand across the world. Um, it Currently, it's the third largest producer of smartphones in the world, which is a giant leap from nearly zero uh, six years ago. Um, but it uh, also has trouble uh, penetrating into the American markets, surprisingly enough, due to fears of its connections with the Chinese government. Which haven't been proven, although there are suspicions that there are very close links between the Chinese and the Chinese government, the PLA, and Huawei. Again, there is not a lot of definitive uh, information on that. Um, ben, what, what is Huawei's presence in Africa? Its presence in Africa is multifaceted. It's in the carrier business uh, in terms of setting up the infrastructure for uh, telecommunication networks like wireless or line networks. Um, it also sells uh, cell phones uh, for consumers. Um, it also has uh, enterprise business where it sets up networks within uh, or uh, for private organizations. It, uh, its total revenue from 2014, like 15% of their revenue uh, globally, comes from Africa. So let's get a little bit more in detail now about this question of the training and the skills transfer, which of course is what your paper was all about. I'm going to read a couple of statistics and facts from your paper just to kind of convey it to everybody. So you, you wrote that Huawei has seven training centers in around the continent, Angola, the DRC, Egypt, Kenya, Morocco, Nigeria, and South Africa. And, and it's there that they are training kind of students and kind of young engineers, apparently to the tune of 12,000 every year. So there is something going on. And I guess the key question for me is that, is this kind of, you know, just BS, CSR, corporate social responsibility headlines? They're kind of making, you know, things better. But at the end of the day, they're not really substantive training programs. This is really more about grabbing attention for corporate social responsibility and public relations, or from your research, did you find that they're actually training people, giving them practical, tangible skills in the hope of further localizing their business operations across the continent? From my investigation, uh, I took a lot of sources from local media, as well as from Huawei press releases and also Chinese media. And from what it looks like, uh, Huawei does want to localize. It's also forced in some of the governments to localize. There are laws uh, in certain countries like Kenya where there are, uh, I would assume you would call quotas in uh, training locals for certain jobs uh, in the uh, telecommunications uh, field. There are also... Um, research papers uh, done by academics who've been on the ground and have interviewed uh, trainees and their experience is that, yeah, they are being trained by Huawei and these skills uh, can be utilized in this uh, telecommunications sector. Um, frequently when, when Chinese companies make the point that they are localizing in Africa, you find that 
the localization happens very low down on the totem mm-hmm. pole. You know, so people people with very low, like workers with low skills, tend to yeah. be overwhelmingly African, but then managers, um, engineers, and so on are overwhelmingly Chinese. Do you see that pattern in Huawei as well, or do you see locals kind of appearing higher up in the hierarchy? Um, that, that's hard to determine because uh, I base a lot of my research on uh, news media, local news media. Uh, they don't go too in-depth, but from what I can find out, uh, Huawei has partnered up with governments and local universities uh, that are focused on engineering and also the other sciences. Um, so it does look like... Um, they are focused on more of the um, skill-based, high-end training. Uh, yeah. So you kind of went through in your paper country by country of the seven different countries to kind of talk about what they're doing. And in particular, you highlighted the the program that Huawei calls Seeds for the Future, which is their training program. And, you know, again, it just makes me really suspicious that this is CSR kind of PR more than anything substantive, but I'll take your word for it that there's actually something going on here. You did at the, towards the end of your paper, start to raise some unanswered questions. Walk us through some of the questions that you came away with after doing research on this, uh, in particular about the effectiveness of the training centers. Yeah, there's no real statistics about how successful these training programs are. Um, after they get their, the trainees get their training, uh, do they? Where are they able to find jobs after that? Because um, they've definitely trained a lot more than uh, the jobs that are available for Huawei, at least. Do do the trainees uh, go to other companies, uh, local telecommunication companies? Can they uh, share their knowledge and uh, help the local um, local telecommunication sector um, outside of Huawei? Um, do, do they train for local managerial positions? Um, there's no real information or data about that. Um, and is this, yeah, really CSR or just good PR? Because um, um, a lot of it is student training. Um, they might train for a week or two. Uh, how, how truly valuable is that? Um, and what's the retention rate for trainees? Um, do they stay in Huawei if they get into Huawei, Huawei or will they find more lucrative uh, positions with uh, perhaps Western telecommunication, telecommunication companies? You, you know, Kobus, Ben raises a couple good points here that I'd like to get your take on. In part, what is the definition of training? And, you know, could it be a one-week course? Could it be an online course for all we know? Uh, and I think that's a, a legitimate question to ask. And, I, and, you know, one of the problems is that, you know, it's hard to find out from Huawei and from a lot of Chinese companies because they're rather opaque. Um, so I know you don't specifically have any background in this, but just given your experience in kind of looking at Chinese companies operating in Africa, what's your take on the kind of BSPR, CSR side, a lot of acronyms there, and the legitimate training kind of, you know, scale. Where do you think these kind of programs fall, based on an educated guess, of course, without any back, facts to back it up? 
As you said, that's not really my field, but from what I have seen, Huawei seems to be uh, somewhat more enthusiastic about localization. Um, as, as as Ben mentioned in, in his article as well, they, they, they are making localization in Africa quite a, a, a central plank of their, of their identity here. And so they, for example, in South Africa, um, appointed quite prominent, in, 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 South Africans in quite prominent positions, um, you know, as spokespeople, for example, and so on. Um, so it is interesting how how they do that much more than other Chinese companies. Um, in terms of answering the question about how how much worth this this kind of training is, I mean, one of the problems is is not only from from the Huawei side, but actually also from the African press side, because there's a lot of breathless reporting um, about oh, thousand South Africans are being sent to China for for IIT or you know ICT training. And then you never really hear back from them, like what what they actually learned, and you never really, you, you know, the journalists aren't rigorous enough to question what is actually going to ha- happen there. Like, are they be are they being taught to use browsers, or are they taught to make new browsers? You know, um, so those those are two different kinds of training. Um, and so, so I feel that there's there's a, sometimes a bit of a culture in Africa where the 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 kind of charity economy in Africa is so strong. You know, kind of that there, that there's a kind of a logic of things. Um, being handed over all the time and you know kind of gift horses are not not looked in the mouth kind of situation you know um and and i think that can be a problem africa it's sometimes not hard nosed enough about about pursuing what yeah. what this training actually is very interesting and a little bit of context about huawei and for those who who maybe have not lived in africa but particularly those in the united states who don't have any appreciation for the huawei brand because again as ben pointed out it's not active Huawei's been banned from doing business in the in the in a lot of its uh, the markets in the United States. It can sell phones, but for example, U.S. government employees can't own a Huawei phone, and there's a lot of restrictions on it because they're afraid of spying. But in Africa, when I lived in Kinshasa, uh, I connected to the internet from a Huawei 3G dongle. Uh, people had Huawei phones. That Huawei is building the cell towers. They're building the routers. They're building the network operation hubs. Uh, they're they're basically connecting vast parts of Africa to the internet, and there's a lot of deep emotional connection to the brand because people uh, really they love that. Um, Huawei phones, in in fact, are being designed for Africa. They are dust resistant. They have solar panels on the back for recharging, and so there's a lot of innovation that's happening from Huawei and other Chinese companies, but Huawei in particular. And so they're really doing a good job at serving the African market, much better, in fact, than, say, Apple, which doesn't really value the African market that much because it doesn't produce a low-end line of products the way that Huawei does. And so I think the brand actually has quite a bit of strength. So for Huawei, it's a very good public relations move to do this. Again, we're just guessing as to whether it's effective or not. Ben, with all of this in mind, taking into account what I just mentioned with regards to the brand, we talked about the training program, CSR, you kind of came away with, at the end of your, your, your policy paper, with some recommendations. Walk us through the, the three or four recommendations that you think we should all consider when evaluating Huawei's training programs in Africa. Yeah, um, these recommendations are more tar- targeted toward African governments. Um, I think uh, the way Huawei has conducted itself in uh, partnering up with uh, the governments and local schools and universities to develop partnerships. 
so they can initiate training programs for students. Uh, it's a great way to transfer skills, technology uh, for the next generation of people getting into uh, telecommunications uh, in African countries. Um, I think uh, African government should be welcoming of foreign firms to establish training centers um, to obviously train uh, their local uh, populations. Um, I think also that there are a lot of stringent labor laws that uh, might actually discourage foreign uh, telecommunication companies uh, from entering into the country. And uh, there might, uh, I, I suggest that uh, relax these restrictions and uh, be more welcoming for foreign companies to uh, invest in, in their countries. Kobus, looking back on all of this, tell me a little bit about what you're thinking in terms of training programs and this idea that it comes down to for me, which is it comes to African governance. We talked about at the beginning of the show uh, the research that Deborah Braudigam has done in China from the 70s and 80s, which was that the Chinese were very insistent that if you're going to come to our country and work with us, you have to engage in skills transfer and training. And it was a non-negotiable thing. African governments, for either reasons of corruption, incompetence, or expediency, don't seem to be putting up those kind of requirements to not only the Chinese but others. And so I guess I'm wondering about why it is you think that African governments do not impose on the Chinese any sense that they has as a part of their investment, as a part of the natural resource extraction, they have to engage in these types of programs the same way that the Chinese did back in the 70s and 80s with the Japanese. One of the key reasons is that China was one country, so they could, you know, they, they could hold their massive domestic market hostage, essentially, um, you know, and and they were they were negotiating from a unified position. So the government was was negoti negotiating both the skills transfer and the extraction, um, and the market access. Um, so Africa is a bunch of small countries, um, and they haven't gotten uh, gotten it together to negotiate as as a unified block. I mean. They won't be able to, to negotiate in that way before they before they set up, uh, you know, something relating or coming close to some form of common market. So that is, I think, the main reason. You know, kind of, um, uh, you know, it's a bunch of small, poor African countries, you know, negotiating with with a, a 800 pound gorilla. Um, so, so it it makes it much much harder, especially because the domestic markets that is that is highly attractive. I mean, Africa is one of the the last. Um, Un, unsaturated mobile phone markets in the world, um, and mobile phone companies are making money in Africa because they're selling huge volumes. Um, but you know, the, the, the individual African countries are small markets. You know, kind of Africa is only a massive market in in as, as a whole, um, and African governments haven't gotten it together to actually negotiate, to gotten it together with each other to to kind of break down tariff barriers and so on in order to be able to negotiate as a block. Well, this question of skills transfer is, is actually a very, very important one. And if you follow China-Africa relations, you will hear time and time again the frustration that comes uh, across the continent and also around the world 
about how this perception of the Chinese not investing as much in human capital and human development as many people expect. Whether or not it's true, it's very, very hard to tell. As we heard from Ben, uh, we get a sense that there is something going on, but at the end of the day, we can't really confirm it. Ben, excellent work on the paper. Uh, you know, one of the things we always like to do when we have students on the show is kind of hear a little bit about kind of what you're planning on doing. So you're finishing up your master's at, uh, at Johns Hopkins. Uh, do, you have, do you have plans to stay in the China-Africa space after you graduate? Uh, possibly. I am looking into working uh, in public service. Uh, I'm still applying to certain jobs, uh, USAID or um, uh, the uh, Foreign Service okay. that's China-related. <laughs> well, let me say, as one American to another, our Foreign Service and USAID definitely, desperately need people who have your background. And uh, so I wish you the best of luck. The paper is Do Huawei's Training Programs and Centers Transfer Skills to Africa? Ben Sui is the author, and he's also a master's candidate finishing up his degree at Johns Hopkins University. He wrote the paper for the China Africa Research Initiative. You can find it over on their website at CARI, that's C A R I dash SAIS dot org. Uh, and there are all the papers from uh, from Carrie, as well as you'll find Ben's paper. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And for Cobus Van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa.